Chapter Fifteen of the Copper Princess. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Betsy Bush, June two thousand nine. The Copper Princess by Kirk Monroe. Chapter Fifteen. Peveril in the Hands of His Enemies. Having been driven from Red Jacket by the Cornishman under Mark Trefethen, the Bohemian Rothsky, and his fellow car-pushers of the White Pine Mine, who had assaulted Peveril on his first day of work, had taken to the woods like wild beasts. Although restrained of their evil intentions for the time being, they were more bitter than ever against the innocent cause of their trouble, and swore with strange foreign oaths to kill him if the chance should ever offer. In the meantime, they must find some way of gaining a livelihood, and this finally came to them at a queer, semi-abandoned mine across which they stumbled in the course of their wanderings. Its proprietor was an old man who seemed half-crazed, and the mine that he was working, in a small way, with a pitifully inadequate force, was absolutely barren of copper. But as he paid their wages promptly, the car-pushers were willing to do his bidding without asking questions. One of the scarcest things about this mine was timber with which to support the roof of the only drift that was being opened. The proprietor tried to force his men to continue their work and open the drift far beyond a point of safety without the protection of this most necessary adjunct. And when they refused, he became furiously angry. Their job seemed to have come to an end, and all hands were about to leave, when, by an opportune gale, a supply of the desired material was cast up on the adjacent coast. Every able-bodied man was immediately set to work collecting this, and in towing raft after raft of the heaven-sent logs to a landlocked basin, they lay but a short distance from the mine. In this way, even before the arrival of Peveril and his wreckers, a large amount of the needed timber had been secured. Although the miners were well aware that their employer carried on some other business besides the development of his barren property, they neither knew nor cared to know what it was. They discovered that it was in some way connected with the coming and going of certain vessels, but beyond this they were kept in ignorance. When one of these vessels reported a party of laughing-fish also engaged in a search for wrecked logs, the exertions of the white-haired mine-owner were so redoubled that before Peveril found time to work the coast to the northward of his camp, it had been stripped of every log. Having obtained possession of his coveted timber, the old man was now making every effort to have it transported to the mouth of his shaft, believing that, if he could once get it underground, his right to the logs would remain unquestioned. He had, however, only partially succeeded in effecting this removal, when, to his chagrin, Peveril appeared on the scene of activity. After the defeat of the young man's attempt to capture the raft, his two bohemians were easily induced to join the enemy by promises of better pay than they were getting. As for Joe Pintod, he was indeed taken prisoner, but was purposely so loosely guarded that he found no difficulty in escaping to the schooner of his friends, which came into port that afternoon, and on which he was carried off to Canada. 
Thus was the White Pine Wrecking Expedition completely broken up, and only its leader was left to carry out, if he could, its objects. Even he had been set adrift in an oarless skiff, with the hope that he would be so long delayed in reporting to his employers as to allow time for the captured logs to be put underground before another demand for them could be made. This disposition of the captive was only known to the old man, who had, unobserved, removed the oars from Peveril's skiff, and so it was generally supposed that he would return directly to his camp at Laughing Fish. Rothsky, the Bohemian, who was one of those working near the log raft, had instantly recognized Peveril, and at sight of him his hatred blazed up with redoubled fury. To be sure, his broken jaw had healed, but so awry as to disfigure his face and render it more hideous than ever. Now to find the man who had done him this injury, again interfering with his plans, filled him with rage. Although he had no opportunity for venting it at the moment, he easily learned from Peveril's late followers the location of their camp, and believing that the young man would be found there, he planned an attack upon it for that very night. He had no difficulty in inducing the two other car-pushers who had been driven from the white pine to join him, and as soon as they quit work that evening they set forth on foot. They had not settled on any plan of action, and though Rothsky was determined to kill the man he hated, his associates imagined that the young fellow was only to be punished in such a way as would cause him a considerable degree of suffering, and at the same time afford them great amusement. They did not anticipate any interference with their plans, even should they be discovered, for the fishermen of the cove were their fellow countrymen, bound to them by the ties of a common hatred against all native-born Americans. Now it so happened that the only daughter of the erratic old mine-owner had set forth that afternoon, accompanied only by her ever-present bodyguard, a great lean stag-hound, on a long gallop over the wild uplands surrounding her home. For that desolate little mining village was the only home Mary Darrell had known since the death of her mother five years before, or when she was but twelve years of age. Until then she had lived in New England, and had only seen her father upon the rare occasions of his visits from the mysterious West in which his life was spent. To others he was a man of morose silence, suspicious of his fellows, secretive and unapproachable. But to his only child, the one light of his darkened life, and the sole hope of his old age, he was ever the loving father, tender and indulgent. Bringing her to the only home he had to offer, he had made all possible provision for her comfort and happiness. The most recent books were sent to her, and the latest music found its way into the wilderness for her amusement. Himself a well-educated man, Ralph Darrell devoted his abundant leisure to her instruction, and to the study of her tastes. Only two of the girls' expressed wishes were left ungratified, and both of these he had promised to grant when she should be eighteen years of age. One of them was that they might return to the home of her childhood. To this her father's unvarying answer was that business and a regard for her future welfare compelled him to remain where they were until the expiration of a certain time. When it should be elapsed, he promised that she should lead him to any part of the world she chose. Cheered by this promise, 
she planned many an imaginary journey to foreign lands, and many a long hour did Mary and her father beguile in arranging the details of these delightful wanderings. Her other wish was for a companion of her own age, but this was so decidedly denied that she knew it would be useless to express it again after the first time. "'It would mean ruin, absolute ruin and beggary for us both,' said Mr. Darrell, "'if I were to allow a single stranger, young or old, of even ordinary intelligence to visit this place. From the time you are eighteen years of age you shall have plenty of friends of your own choosing. But until that date, dear, you must be content with only the society of your old dad.' So Mary Darrell studied, sang, read, rode, and thought the fanciful thoughts of girlhood alone, but always with impatient longings for the coming of the magic hour that should set her free. And yet she was not wholly alone, for her father would at any time neglect everything else to give her pleasure, while she also had both Sandy, her stag-hound, and Fuzz, her pony, for devoted companions. She was allowed to ride when and where she pleased, with only these attendants on two conditions— one was that she should never visit, nor even go near a human residence, and the other that, when on such excursions, she should, for greater safety, dress as a boy. When she was thus costumed, her father was very apt to call her by her middle name, which was Heaton. And so it was generally supposed, by the few miners who caught glimpses of her, that the old man had two children, a girl and a boy, who was not only younger than she, but devoted to horseback riding. Only one duty devolved upon the girl thus strangely reared, and that was the keeping watch for certain vessels that came in from the great lake and sailed away again at regular intervals. So Mary Darrell was out riding on the evening that witnessed the capture of Richard Peveril by his bitterest enemies, and as twilight deepened into dusk she was urging her way homeward with all speed. In the meantime, the three rascal car-pushers, who had come so unexpectedly upon him who they sought, and had so easily effected his capture, led Peveril directly away from the trail he had been following to a place in the woods known only to Rothsky. Close to where they finally halted and began preparations for the punishment of the prisoner, who was also expected to afford them infinite amusement by his sufferings, yawned a great black hole. It was of unknown depth, and was nearly concealed by a tangle of vines and bushes. Rothsky had stumbled upon it by accident only a few days before, and now conceived that it would be a good place in which to dispose of a body, in case they should happen to have one on their hands. Trusting to the wildness of their surroundings, and the absence of human beings from that region to shield them from observation, they ventured to build a fire— by the light of which they proposed to carry out their devilish plans. Besides binding Peveril's arms, they had, on reaching this place, taken the further precaution of tying his ankles, so that he now lay on the ground utterly helpless, a prey to bitter thoughts, but nerving himself to bear bravely whatever torture might await him. All at once the deep baying of a hound and a crash of galloping hoofs coming directly towards the firelight, sounded through the wood. With a fierce imprecation, Rothsky gave a hasty order, at which all three men sprang to where Peveril was lying in deepest shadow. Hurriedly picking him up, they carried him a short distance, 
gave a mighty swing and flung him from them. There was a crash of parted bushes and rending vines, a stifled cry, and all was still. A minute later, when a boyish figure on horseback swept past the fire, the three men seated by it only aroused a fleeting curiosity in Mary Darrell's mind as to what they could be doing in such a place at such a time. End of chapter 15